Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Hello, everyone. Hey there. Hi. Hi. There's four of us this time. So we have a really exciting episode in store for everyone. We have two former students of UCLA and now very close colleagues and friends, Danielle Candelora and Nadia Ben-Marzouk, here today to talk about a edited volume that we, that Kara, Nadia, and Danny worked on. I was a part of it. Um, starting back in one of our grad seminars and following it through to, you know, publication. And the book came out, the volume came out last year. And so we have uh, Nadia and Danny here today to discuss the volume, how it's different than other volumes on Egyptian society, how the articles were chosen and things like this. And it's at a really good price point. So it's about $35 for the, for the paperback. So it's really accessible to all, all peoples um, of interested parties. Okay. It's cheap. It's so cheap. Yeah, it's cheap. So I'll introduce our, our guest for today. Um, so we have Danielle Candelora, who is an assistant professor of ancient Mediterranean history at SUNY Cortland and co-director of excavations at South Karnak. Super cool. She received her PhD in Egyptology from UCLA, and her research focuses on immigration in ancient Egypt, the reception of foreigners, strategies of identity maintenance, and advertisement. Very interesting topics. And we also have Nadia Ben-Marzouk, who is a postdoctoral fellow at Tel Aviv University and the University of Zurich, working on the stamp seals from the Southern Levant Project. Her research explores craft production, producers, and modes of technological transmission in the Bronze and Iron Age Levant, Egypt, and East Mediterranean. She also received her PhD from UCLA. Welcome you both to the podcast. Thanks for stopping by today. We're so excited you're here. Yes. <laughs> Little reunion. So let me also give a little background to the volume so people, so our listeners were all on the same page and then we can get into inspiration and all that good stuff. So this volume, um, I should probably say the name of the volume, it is Ancient Egyptian Society, Challenging Assumptions, Exploring Approaches. And we will link out the Amazon Rutledge page to our listeners on the Substack so you can all have a look at that and see the contributions there. But this volume challenges assumptions about and highlights new approaches to the study of ancient Egyptian society by tackling various thematic social issues through structured individual case studies. The reader will be presented with questions about the relevance of the past in the present. The chapters encourage an understanding of Egypt in its own terms through the lens of power, people, and place, offering a more nuanced understanding of the way Egyptian society was organized and illustrating the benefits of new approaches to topics in need of critical re-examination. <laughs> By reevaluating traditional long-held beliefs about a monolithic, unchanging ancient Egyptian society, this volume writes a new narrative, one unchecked assumption at a time. Yay! What was the inspiration for this volume? Can we give a little bit about the, the story behind it? What made y'all want to pursue this? We know it was an arduous journey. Um, so why did you feel like it was necessary in our field to, to pursue this? I think the idea for the volume started in a graduate seminar back when we were all grad students on ancient Egyptian society. 
And it kind of shaped itself into a very fruitful weekly three-hour shouting match where all of us got very passionate about, you know, whatever aspects of Egyptian society we were focusing on that week and um, continuously poking holes in whatever sort of um, narrative people are used to hearing and say, you know, your ancient Egyptian textbooks um, and really trying to push uh push for like where the roots of these ideas were coming from and did they still hold and all this type of ideas. And so um, I think that was really the genesis of where the idea to do a new book came from, especially because at the time we were, the readings assigned for the grad seminar were like some of the more traditional um, ancient Egyptian society and history type books. Um, and we saw that throughout the conversations we were having that there were lots of other ways to approach that question um, that hadn't really been uh, tried. So we wanted to try. I think Kara was the one in class who was like, we should do a book and just kind of threw out this fun idea. Um, and Danny and I were like started talking about it seriously, like we actually should. And so we approached Kara. I think we all had lunch together. Um, and decided to like materialize it and make it a reality. I want to point out that because I overteach and I teach too many things when I do grad seminars, I often hand them to the graduate students and say, what do you want to do? What do you want to read? How do you want to work it? And this particular set of grad seminars, it was, I think, did we do two quarters on society and one quarter on economy? Um, and, and Danny and Nadia really led those seminars and put together all the reading and were taskmasters of the other graduate students. I mean, Jordan, you remember the, the assigned readings. There were like 20 things for each week and it was rather overwhelming. And then the shouting ensued. So if you didn't do your reading, you couldn't participate in the seminar as it, it was, was good, progressing. The good old days. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty fun. So lots of passion went into this, this volume. And, um, well, and I think yeah. we all felt like we had something to say, right? We were looking at these volumes of Egyptian society, very traditional, you know, like pyramid, actual pyramid structures, right? With the king on top. I think we were like, why does it have to be structured in this way? A lot of groups of Egyptian society were missing, right? Like women were often subjugated to their own chapter. That's the only time they were talked about. And so we were looking at ways of kind of blowing up this <laughs> Um, this narrative that is so that's so permeated and still probably um, it honestly permeates teachings about ancient Egypt. I definitely I mean, one, remember a whole seminar day where we were trying to redraw that social pyramid of Egypt with the uh, yeah. you know, the, the pharaoh on top and then the elites and then like everybody else and uh, yeah, we were like, where do artists all over go? whiteboards and like it should be a tree, it should be, and we did not figure it out, but it no. was a very useful discussion. In the introduction to this volume, you in response to maybe the pyramid structure, you all decided to section out the volume within three themes. So you have power, people, and place, a nice alliteration. Why did you end up choosing these? Was it more in response to the articles being submitted and they lumped into these three categories? When you were looking at the submissions for the volume, did you already have these themes in, in mind and why did those stick out to you as um, useful categories to look at Egyptian society? So I think pretty much all of the different thoughts about organizing this volume were, let's do it in a way that other people haven't done it. Um, so let's not be chronological and let's not do chapters on 
social categories like women and merchants and soldiers and uh, instead let's do something completely different. And so the three of us spent a long time thinking about, you know, what what are the most basic building blocks of society? And um, these also kind of align with what the three of us focus on in terms of our own um, sort of theoretical backgrounds to our own research. People, place and power uh, took us a quite a while to come to as like the large subdivisions of the volume. And actually I would say once the submissions came in, um, it was actually a lot harder than we anticipated to categorize papers in any of those three rubrics, um, which we can talk about, you know, maybe a little more later, but um, because the three of them are so intertwined uh -huh. um, in any society. And so picking out a paper where a person was really only just focusing on people with no power or no place was turned out to be extremely difficult. Not impossible, but that's okay. We're all influenced by Michael Mann's overlapping ideological, economic, military, and political. And that was kind of haunting the whole thing, but we didn't want to do that. So mm -hmm. we needed more people. I remember people saying, we need more people. It's all about the people. Nadia, that was you. I think, you know, when like this exercise also was very useful in making me realize how conditioned we are by, by boundaries and categorizing things and trying to fit things so neatly into boxes. And that's not the way um, that's not the way society is structured or functions or works. And so we spent a lot of time just in discussion about where, where should this paper go? You know, I want it here. Well, I want it here. And I think at the end of the day, we just realized you, they can really go anywhere, you know? Um, so it was, it was a very interesting exercise actually to, to think about the organization of this, of this, uh, of this volume. And funnily enough, I didn't write the power section, which of course everyone knows I'm obsessed with power. And every time I'm in class, I'm like, oh, more, more power. Kira's all about power. But I did not. I did not write that section. Yeah. So no, she each... essentially ended up writing the power of place. <laughs> so I put I put power into place. It's true. It's true. So so uh, looking yeah. looking back now on the process with some distance, now that it's, you know, fully published and it's been a year, would you now that we have this idea that the categories are maybe not, would you still do it in this way? Or do you think you would just maybe leave it totally uncategorized and maybe have one kind of some different theory chapters peppered throughout or something? Or do you still think it's a useful structuring method? I still think it's a really useful structuring method, uh, even just as a sort of a, a proof positive that there are other ways to approach um, questions of society. And I think the difficulty we had in, in placing papers in one of these three categories proved that it was the correct sort of, or like a very um, effective sort of descriptor of, of how society works um, and how intertwined they are. Uh -huh. um, so yeah, I, I think it was, uh, I think it actually turned out, turned out very well. Yeah. I mean, what's the norm? The norm in an edited volume is that you have this beginning introduction that uh -huh. talks about what the the edited volume is about, whether it comes from a workshop or set of discussions or something like that. And, and you have, you know, a short couple pages about, usually short, about what, what this topic means. And then there's this strange section where you have to mention every paper, right? Yep. You have to mention how every paper fits into the idea that you have. And, and doing that is so, it can be, it can, it, often it can be very good, but sometimes it's very artificial. 
And you always get a paper that doesn't quite fit or it's like, well, I have to say, I have to put this here or there. Um, we wanted to have the papers in conversation with each other a little more, particularly because the most of the writers of the volume were not collected in this graduate seminar. The that's graduate my next students question, were, actually. Yeah. but like, that's like, I think what, six, seven of the papers are, are graduate student papers and the rest of them were invited and not in conversation with each other. So we had to make them converse with each other. And our editing process was a little more hands-on perhaps because of that. Like, I remember we got, we got some chapters that were like twice as long about topics that didn't quite fit or, and, and we had to um, jump in there and really take out, and Rutledge demanded it too, much more than you would in a Brill edited volume or a Lockwood edited volume. This was like, no, each paper needs to be this long. The whole volume needs to be this long. The editing and cutting process was brutal. And we mm -hmm. didn't expect it to be as brutal. I think that's why the book only cost $35, because they demanded that we we stick to a very tight page count. Mm -hmm. And we did. But that that means we had to go in and edit authors who maybe didn't expect it or want it. But I think it worked out in the end. Yeah. And in a lot of cases that that often looked like, you know, um, sort of reframing, helping them to see a way to reframe the chapter so that it was more in line with this sort of broad picture of what society was and then and then diving into the case study as opposed to, you know, having the paper solely be about the case study. So, uh -huh. yeah, framing it a little better. Yeah. Yeah. So as as Kara mentioned, right, we have a lot of heavy hitters in this volume. It's it came out of a grad seminar, but um, you ended up inviting John Baines, Ellen Morris, Nadine Moeller, Juan Carlos Moreno Garcia, Dimitri Labory. We have a lot of super heavy hitters in this. But then also a mix of more early career scholars like you all and graduate students, um, which I think is a particular strength of this volume. And so why did you choose to have this mix? Because a lot of volumes won't include graduate students or early career scholars, right? They're looking for more of the heavy hitters or, or it will be vice versa. It's not this kind of um, happy mix. And so why did you choose to have it this way or and did you did you think it was fruitful and productive? I would say that the seminar itself led into that direction because I gave the seminar to Danny and Nadia. I'm like, do it the way you want. And they were like, we're not having presentations this year. We're going to do it this way. And because they were leading it that whole way and because I was being schooled, um, being the Gen Xer in the room and the one who'd come through the Albrightian, you know, Johns Hopkins slash Chicago training method, which is very old school, very colonial. Um, that was my training. And there's a lot of new work coming out and new perspectives. And I needed the millennial perspective. And if we didn't include it and and balance it and instead went towards the old school authors and, and only included the big hitters, I don't think it would have had the ideas that it has. Um, it has to have that rebalancing. And there are many papers that don't agree with one another in, in the volume on this very same topics, which shows you how much ancient society is a construct of modern society and a reflection of modern society. But it's also, it's showing how, how if we, and, and, you know, Amber and I, we just did a podcast about how history cannot be apolitical. But I think this volume shows that. They're, the older generation, Gen X is maybe less so, but certainly boomers are like, history is apolitical. We can separate these two things and you can't. And by doing a volume in which you have multiple generational perspectives, you can see how political it inherently is, whether you call it out or not. And I think that was 
that was really important. And I think the younger generation demanded that I include more theory in my own work. And so I did what I was told. Yep. Sure did. <laughs> um, I also think it was, uh, you know, especially in the seminar and discussions in the seminar, it was, um, it became apparent that uh, earlier on grad students and early career scholars had had a lot less time to be enculturated, shall we say, in the traditional like narrative approaches. Like we knew them, we learned them for our exams and everything, but it hadn't become, you know, part of our bone marrow yet. Yeah. And we were kind of still in that angry grad student phase of questioning everything, um, like everything. <laughs> uh, I think that was part of the um, impetus behind the volume. And then we really wanted to include those types of perspectives in the volume from both ends. And you see it in the in the title that we chose, right? Like it's challenging assumptions and exploring approaches, which was the, I feel like every seminar that we had that's exactly what we were doing, right? So if you're going to knock something down, what is the new direction that you want to take? Um, and so it was really important for us to have structure that essentially asked contributors, not necessarily to commission things, but to just check an assumption which is what we did. We spent every seminar doing like, where does this idea come from? Is it just because it's been repeated so often in the literature, which is how you become enculturated into this community, right? Um, what is its origins? Where did it come from? And in light of new methods, would you still say that this is something that, that remains uh, what we consider to be true? And I, I, I found it particularly helpful from a more meta perspective, as that was my first foray into publications and stuff to have you all around to help and guide guide me along the process. And, you know, the it, everything went through peer review, right? Some papers didn't get accepted. It was helpful for me as a graduate student to have, I, it felt like a safe space because you guys were the editors, at least for me. Okay. We kind of touched upon this question a little bit, but I want to just hammer it home. So how do you see this volume different than previous works on Egyptian society? We talked about the structuring being different, but besides that, like, why was it necessary to have this volume come out? And then second question, how do you see this being used? What's the intended audience? How do you see it being used in academia, for the public, et cetera? I mean, I remember pulling out all of the old volumes and and putting them on my, I have this one particular closet shelf <laughs> and I had, you know, the, the Trigger O'Connor um, up there. I had um, the Barry Kemp up there. I had the Donadoni edited volume there um, and, and many others, but, you know, Ancient Lives and things like that. And, you know, you have, I had this collection that I like, okay, they did it this way. They did it that way. Um, what are the, the categories being imposed upon us? Um, what are the ways that we're being expected to think? Um, how is this social pyramid that's like etched in our minds, like demanding that we think in a certain way and how can we burn it to the ground and do something differently? But, um, you know, those, those volumes were very formative and we couldn't have done this volume without those volumes, without the Barry Kemp's of the world. I would say Barry Kemp was probably out of all of those volumes, the most um, formative for us and the most of what we wanted to do. And I know there are people that have 
have problems with Barry Kemp's Anatomy of a Civilization, Ancient Egypt Anatomy of a Civilization, but the narrative style and the way that he understood that you couldn't tell an encyclopedic story and cover everything, that you could cover this narrative and that narrative and pull in case studies. That's what we really wanted to do. We wanted a case study approach. And just Barry Kemp's um, republication of new editions of that ancient Egyptian society volume, or, you know, just ancient Egypt, but it's a society volume where he takes out three chapters and puts in three new chapters. I mean, he's written four books in a sense with the editions that have come out. I think that was very interesting to us to have that perspective of, of kind of sweeping into an ancient place and time and going in depth and then coming back out and applying the larger theories to it. Very few edited volumes get the freedom, I think, to put themselves together in the way that we did. Either a, a publisher is commissioning an edited volume on some topic and you have to like stick within that or it's a fesh shrift um, and, and, you know, you're just basically asking friends of the, of the, of the honoree. Um, but in this case, we really, we, we like had to pitch this from the, from the ground up. Um, and so we were able to build it exactly how we wanted it. And, and so a lot of that was thinking about like what topics were really important to get into a society volume. Um, and, and then who works on that topic that we could invite and who, not just who works on it, but who works on it in an interesting new kind of approach, uh, way. And so uh, there were a lot of like brainstorming sessions where it was like, we want urbanism, maybe Mueller, and we want, you know, power and trade and the state, Juan Carlos Moreno Garcia. And, and then a lot of invites went out and some people agreed and some didn't. Um, so I think it was a really interesting process in that way where we got to, yes, yeah, we got to shape it as exactly how we wanted it. We wanted to include a non-Egyptologist traditionally in our group. And that's why Nadia's presence was so very, very important because she's like, look, you guys, Egypt is affecting other places and other places are affecting Egypt. And not that you don't do that, Danny. Obviously, that's your work too. But it's certainly not the way I was trained, right? Where you stay in your little bubble with your blinders on. So Nadia, your perspective was particularly important here. And I, I would also say a lot of, you know, the people that we invited were the people whose work we were discussing um, yeah. in the seminar as well. And so it was really important. While they weren't in the seminar, they were, they played a big part of the seminar. So I think that was also really important for us um, when we were putting the, the invite, uh, the list of invitees together. In a way, the volume became like the ideal seminar right yeah. of like readings you'd want to read weeks you would want to touch upon things like that so um to that end again yeah how do you guys see this book this volume being used what one thing danny you you already pointed this out or you called it out but i want to put a finer point on it that some when when you're a graduate student or a teenager you know you're going through your formative years and you're learning. And while you're learning, you're also critiquing and ripping things apart simultaneously. There is a tendency to just burn it to the ground without rebuilding anything in its place. And I think that as things were being burned to the ground, as we were deciding, no, we don't want that approach. That approach is old and stale and serves a certain community that is not the community that's coming in now. What are we, we going to replace it with was the most important question that we continued to ask. And and I think in some ways, I'm not going to say that I'm the one that pushed you guys necessarily in that direction, because I think you were doing that. But there was, as I sat there and saw 
the world that the boomers had fed to me burnt to the ground. There was a part of me in the seminar that was going, okay, but what are you going to do instead? Fine, but what are you going to do instead? And I think that's very much what what this volume ended up um, becoming. Yeah, and for, you know, in keeping with that, I think that's that's why it's useful for pretty much anyone interested in ancient Egyptian society from the public to the undergraduate audience to a grad seminar or uh, scholars in the field because these are really excellent um, pieces of scholarship, the individual papers, um, really excellent, important case studies like for the field. But at the same time, the whole idea and concept behind the volume is a really important, um, again, new effort to redefine society and uh, should the volume structure in itself should hopefully be raising these types of questions for anyone interested in, in ancient Egypt. Yeah, like the idea of power, place, and people can be applied to anything, anywhere. And I think it's a really wonderful overlapping system to use. And as Amber knows, she's here but not saying anything. Um, I just, and we just did an, a podcast about body power and how important that is and how I needed to add it to the Michael Mann rubric and work through that. In a way, power, place, and people had was already doing that. Um, it's, it's already there within this overlapping system of, of power dynamics. And those, there was the other, we didn't want to just do an intro for all the chapters and just kind of try to mush it together and make it into some sort of oatmeal. Instead, we wanted to make it into, you know, three separate ways of how do we look at society and, and how can we look at society now through the political lens that we're using now that is feminist, that is anti-patriarchal that is anti-colonial, that is anti-racist, um, that, that tries to, to bring all of these things that we are working with in our society presently into a volume about the ancient patriarchal world. I don't think that's an easy ask, and we did indeed try to do it. I will say um, Jeff's grandma bought the volume, and she read <laughs> our articles, and she understood them. So I have to say, you know, like grandmas can get it. So I think this is a, a check, check plus for our for the volume that it's super accessible, right? It's um, they're super scholarly peer reviewed, but also um, the way they're framed and written. And I think at one point you all came back with add a little paragraph to the beginning of each uh, article, connecting it to maybe a more modern topic, a bigger world topic, a bigger world problem. Um, to make it more, we didn't allow we didn't accessible. allow foreign words. Like no, no. you can't throw in some French yes. or German. I remember my here. French had to be translated. Yes. Yeah, there was <laughs> there was efforts made to make it accessible, understandable, um, but still very scholarly. So I think that's a particular highlight of the volume. Okay, so now I want to dive into the topics covered. So we have a huge array of topics covered um, from human sacrifice, festivals, divine kingship, trade and craftspeople, co-regencies in the 25th dynasty, Medjai, children, women, artists, reception of Egyptian art, borders of Egypt, urban versus village, alphabet, early Islamic Egypt, so we're pushing even the boundaries of what we're thinking about of Egypt about, smell, the harem, right? So this, this volume literally has articles on so many topics. We obviously can't talk about all of them. So if you want to, if one of those piqued your interest, go go buy the book. So we'll focus in on ours because we all have contributed to them in multiple, some in some cases, multiple ways. 
Does anyone want to go first? Well, I, I will say that just to kind of clarify a little bit, we, uh, the three of us each wrote yes. the introduction sort of theoretical approach so, to each of the people place uh, power sections. Um, and then we each also contributed one of a more case study based chapter um, and specifically did not put those in our own sections that we were you know, responsible for curating. So we were trying to um, really force ourselves out of our comfort zones in that way as well. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, Danny, you're speaking. So Danny, what was your cool. case study article about? My work in general focuses on immigration and identity, but for this one, I was really interested in um, something that's tangential to that, that that comes up all the time, but no one ever really addresses and no one ever really spends too much time thinking about, which is why I thought it would be perfect for this volume. And that is, what is Egypt? Um, <laughs> uh, like geographically speaking, what is Egypt and what does it mean? Does Egypt have the same boundaries to everyone at all times? Throughout three, four thousand years of history, um, if you asked someone from the south, someone from the north, would they have the same opinions? If you asked a Nubian, would they agree where the boundary was? The name, um, the word for Egypt, it's like how they self-refer to, you know, this, the entity. Exactly, right? We always hear the first paragraph of almost all ancient Egyptian textbooks are like, Egypt was known as Kemet, the Black Land, uh, which referred to the fertile land in the Nile Valley and uh -huh. et cetera. And so the, my case study was really looking at instances where the word Kemet is used, um, who is using it, in what context, what does it mean to them in that context? Um, does it actually mean like some concept of a collective Egypt? Or are they literally referring to the Nile Valley as opposed to the desert right outside the Nile Valley? that was still technically within Egypt's political borders. Um, did, did that impression change over time? And uh, did it differ among different people? And I think uh, resoundingly the answer was yes, it was different depending on who was talking, when they were talking, um, where they were living, the ideas of the time, what kind of text it, I was looking at. Was it a personal letter or like a state propagandistic type military victory text, really trying to push that at the end of the day, there were many different Egypts. Um, and maybe we shouldn't be so quick to say, you know, Egypt was Kemet and really think about uh, trying to define these terms in their ancient emic perspectives and looking at those perspectives instead of just deciding. Um, and I think your article in particular for me really help to combat this idea of a monolithic ancient Egypt where we crush thousands of years of history into, you know, one little ancient Egypt. And what does that even mean? And that you showed even to the ancient Egyptians, this concept didn't exist, right? That Egypt changed what they thought, the borders, how they conceptualized of the, the land and themselves yeah. as the people of Egypt changed across time. And so us just saying oh, I study ancient Egypt is probably super problematic and way too monolithic, right? So right. Um, I think that's the one thing that ancient society volumes tend to espouse is this idea of like a, a cohesive culture that your article very clearly showed does not exist always. Right. Yeah, and especially from their perspective. <laughs> I think uh, a lot of what I was coming at it from was, does it really matter how we think of it? <laughs> And should we maybe ask them um, 
and yeah, and and I I got into some really interesting theory for that paper, mainly from political sciences and, mm-hmm. and geography about um, borders and um, citizenship laws and things like that that uh, were able to kind of open my eyes to this way that we are just so used to seeing the world in terms of nation states and borders mm-hmm. that it doesn't even occur to us that it might have looked differently in the past. I, I I loved your analogy. I think this was in your article about the airport yeah. going through customs in the airport and like crossing. It's this totally imaginary um, space where you're crossing borders and entering a new country and stuff, but it's in this airport and you're... It's in the middle, the territorial middle of the country. It yeah. has nothing to do with an actual geological border, yeah. geographical border. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. Yeah. That's, I think it's so embedded within our modern society, it's really hard to step out of that and see it in a different way. Yeah. So super great paper. Um, okay. Nadia, what was your okay. case study about? So I looked at um, the social dynamics around the development of the early alphabet. Um, my work looks at mining communities, craftspeople, and the context in which we see new technological innovations in society. Um, and this is what brought me to this case study is um, looking at the practices of the Egyptian expedition community. Um, this was a multilingual community, and it this is the where this community goes out to in Sinai to mine for copper and turquoise um, is where we have the highest concentration of early alphabetic inscriptions. And so what I wanted to do with this case study is complicate the way that identities and language have been treated in the past with regard to how and why the alphabet developed. Um, So in previous scholarship, there has been this uh, tacit assumption that uh, West Asian people spoke Semitic, a Semitic language, and Egyptians spoke Egyptian. And and we know that it's more complicated than that. I'm kind of oversimplifying. But I wanted to think about the way that multilingualism or bilingualism Um, could serve as a source of power in order to create community. And so I engaged with sociolinguistic research on language ideology um, and looked at the text-making practices of early alphabetic inscriptions in relation to the Egyptian, uh, Egyptian inscriptions. And I should give a little background for the readers and say that the early alphabet seems visually influenced by the Egyptian script. Um, And so there's been all these discussions about who and where was the alphabet invented and never really why. And so I wanted to provide an alternative explanation for perhaps why it was invented. So my article is called Othering the Alphabet. And I look at the, as I said, I look at the ways in which texts were made, the decisions that went into making these texts. Visually, they look very similar to Egyptian texts, but there are certain scribal practices, or I should say text-making practices, that um, you would never see in Egyptian. And so there has been this assumption that uh, the people that invented it were illiterate, 
Um, and I wanted to kind of push back and maybe complicate that. And so I dealt a lot with uh, identity capitalization and othering. So when we talk about othering, we're talking about a differential power dynamic between a dominant group and a group that's othered. And usually when it comes to that othered group, um, the way that we speak about them is through the lens of the dominant narrative, and that really strips this group of their agency. There's been some really interesting research on the way that othering could actually be used as a form of um, identity capitalization to build community. And I thought that's really interesting. Like we're looking at this expedition community. There's all sorts of blended practices. We're, we're seeing um, an increase in people with non-Egyptian names. We're seeing non-Egyptian inscriptions appearing in these spaces. This is all taking place at a time. Um, it connects really well with Danny's research on the Hyksos and the Delta. It's taking place at a time of shifting power dynamics within the Nile Valley and the Delta. And so I wanted to do something um, a little different than what's been done in the past and think about the role that language ideology plays um, in the development of, of inscriptions. I love that both Nadia and Danny folk, they, they pushed back hard against this idea that you can only talk about Egyptian society in a hegemonic, dominant cultural narrative and instead focus on resistance in whatever way, in whatever shape that that took with the case studies that they were they were working on. So if you can't just say Kemet, it has to be, well, who's out in the desert? Who's in the ocean? Who is in the Red Sea? What, what's happening that's beyond? And this just the, Nadia, you correcting yourself from scribal practice to text making right there. It's like, oh, we focus on these scribes, this this exclusive group of trained men who are training each other. What happens when that breaks down? And while you were both speaking, I'm thinking of like it's, you know, this bilingualism, how powerful that is, how subversive it is to a dominant culture that even if I'm in a dominant position, like say I go into a nail salon, right? And I'm there buying, I'm the one with the money and I'm in the dominant position as the white woman versus people who have, have you know, a much lower socioeconomic position than me. And yet the Vietnamese breaks out and I'm suddenly being subverted <laughs> as I think it should be. But bilingualism is an extraordinarily powerful tool of resistance. And you can see that through power person or place and power people or place. And, and I just love the way that that works in both of these papers. I do have to say, I have to give a plug, Alice Mandel. She has checked me on my use of the term scribe and rightfully so. And it's another assumption that is so embedded in how we speak and talk about writing. Mm -hmm. um, so this is something that I think is really important that I've been reflecting on is just the terminology that I use and yeah. how embedded and encoded it is uh -huh. with different skill sets, different types of knowledge and the, the way that writing function for different communities. Yeah. Scribalism is a good old boys network, right? And yeah. how do you subvert that? If the alphabet subverts that, that's so fucking cool. I can't even. So I think these things need to be called out and scholarship participates in the good old boys club in their way, wittingly or unwittingly. But then if you're, if you're able to subvert it and, and dig it out from the bottom, um, how useful is that? People are going to do it anyway. So we might as well as scholars track it and participate in that, in that work. Do you want to go next, Kara? Or I wrote two main things, right? I wrote about the agency of place because 
Um, and I want to hear what Nadia and Danny have to say about their their people and power sections as well. Yeah. Um, and so maybe I'll start with my harem thing and then we'll go back to the people power in place. So my, I, you know, I'm, and I'm looking at the volume again. I'm like, it's so cool that we put harem in the place section that the king's body is a place. It is a locus. It is a central organizing uh, place through which elite families connect it, through the body of young women who are impregnated by the body of the king and that this this king's body is something that can only be touched accessed uh, by a, a limited number of young women and girls and how the system of the harem worked to create an elite Egyptian society and you know I, I had to deal with a lot of assumptions and push back against a lot of things but one of the main things I had to deal with was are we even allowed to talk about the harem at all because postmodern feminism often creates ideological realities of what we want rather than the lived reality of what we live in. And and so we have a, a lot of scholars who are saying, no, we can't say harem. It's orientalizing and, and uh, dehumanizing and problematic. We need to use words like women's quarters and such. And And yet the word harem is, in my opinion, the only word that that can really situate the exploitation that happened in this particular place um, or places through time and space. And it's the, it's the word that the women and girls who served in this place um, need. It calls it out for what it is. And I do liken it to not using the word slave or enslaved person and instead using, you know, unpaid servant or something like that. I mean, really, how much prettier do we need to make it um, when we're talking about the exploitation and impregnation of of girls, <laughs> family families who are you know sold in a sense to this court, and then the products of that become part of the larger political sphere, and um, so so I was dealing with a lot of those um, assumptions, but also um, trying to understand how the harem really is the Egyptian elite society in a microcosm and how while the women and girls are largely erased from the system, it is through their bodies that, what did we call it before? Not a pyramid, but a tree. That yeah. the, the, the tree forms, right? That the leaves grow. It is through the bodies of these women. So I, I And I co-wrote this with two much younger scholars purposefully because I, I needed their perspective on on what the body is, how it shapes us and um, and how it can be used and abused. And, you know, while we were writing this, all of the Jeffrey Epstein stuff was coming out. So don't tell me we don't have harems in the modern day world. Of course we do. They may be, they could be sequential monogamous situations where you just trade up for the younger wife each time you go. And you could be a 75 year old man, five wives later, all of them of a certain young age. What do you want to call that? Um, and how does it work to create political power for that and social power for that particular patriarch for that man? So, so those were a lot of the, the ideas that I had to work with. And of course, including body is not something that postmodern feminism likes, um, that we talk about this impregnation and exploitation in this non-ideological and binary way. Um, I had to work with a lot of that. So that was, that was um, really fun. <laughs> really, really fun. Well, and I was going to say your recent work on body, adding body into power. So looking back a year, how do you do you have any new insights that you feel like you might have wanted to include then or you're still getting pushback about including body and power? 
Um, so we, this is still an ongoing um, debate amongst more feminist, I think, within feminist theory, right? Well, I, I don't, I am getting pushback, um, of course. And, and I think you all know more or less what some of that pushback is. It's a very positivist look at Egyptian women in power, that they're somehow changing the system. And I would argue that they're not, um, that we, we need to see it as, you know, they should have, be seen as having power that was transcendent and transformed society. And I don't, I unfortunately don't see it in that way. I see these women very much as placeholders. Um, and I know there's a lot of resentment about that particular topic, but dealing with women in power and body in particular, I see how much scholarship is shaped and formed by what we want to be a utopian ideological um, reality rather than what is. Uh -huh. And and so much of what is fashionable in scholarship. And when you're reading, like I, I got a number of books on body power and feminism. It's not like nobody's publishing on this, but there so much, I want to like just throw out all the baby with the bathwater, but the lack of overt discussion of how the body can, a feminine body can be um, put into the binary and, and then exploited in that way was super frustrating. And again, what did I return to? But Marxism. And I ended up with this volume of Marxist feminism that really helped me to see that so much of what postmodern feminism is, is just an ideology. And, and again, there is no history that is apolitical. It does not exist. It cannot exist. And so much of the theory that is fashionable that we're supposed to be talking about, it says, says more about what we want to see in our reality than what existed in the past. In the past, what is it for? And that's what this volume is asking. What is the past fucking for? Is it for us to understand the present and try to figure out the, the mortal coil that we find ourselves in? Or is it to make us feel good about ourselves and create a new nationalism and a new power that can be used for, all, for both of these things? But we, we selected the former, which means that we're, we're coming at it from, from a different perspective. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's so funny. Like, I think back when, I, when Amber and I were working at King Tut, the exhibition at Lackman in 2005, and how passionately angry it made people when the coffin set or the mask were not there and they thought they should be and this is theirs to consume. In the same way that, you know, when people are like, oh, my God, you took my hot Shepsit away. You were a horrible person. And the extraordinary bitterness that that people um, throw at you for revising um, a historical perspective is considerable. And mm -hmm. that's but that's what we wanted to jump into with this volume um, with both feet. And that's that's part of the reason, you know, it was important to include Nadia and and Nadia and my work both push on this in a different way where. From modern feminist perspectives, we want to see feminine power in Egypt as something special. And um, uh, I think in a lot of cases, Egyptologists or even fans of ancient Egypt want to see ancient Egypt as something special um, and responsible for a lot of whatever civilizational uh, developments, the first technological yeah. advances, etc. And Nadia and I both work a lot on on you know looking at influences from outside. And people don't like it. <laughs> um, people don't like it because, again, it's 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 challenging that um, pedestal that they're putting Egypt on. So and the jobs market, they're like, but are you an Egyptologist? What are you working on? If you go too far into the outside world, then who are you and what are you? Uh -huh. um, you know, when when people talk in scholarship, don't impose binaries on me. 
when the binary is being imposed from society in some other way, well, scholarship is imposing all kinds of categories that are not useful for breaking up these these entrenched narratives. And the you know the more I think we worked on this book, and I think Nadia and Danny, having been out in the real academic world for a while, understand that that bravery is not rewarded in the academic system. Bravery is something that that actually. <laughs> Um, will be used to punish you because you're you're not you're you're not towing the party line. You're not doing what should be what should be done and treating the elders with the respect they uh-huh. deserve. Um, and you know, I talked about that Navinsky, Andre Navinsky, yep. open letter in one of the last podcasts, and how I was treated as a young scholar, saying we should revise this. That's all I said. We should revise this. And people, you know, people like cut off my head and like displayed it. And there are people that won't speak to me at conferences. Like they turn their back. I'm like, oh my God, the cut direct. I've heard of this. This is crazy. Um, and and this kind of thing will happen. So it's um, and I, I think that anybody in academia, particularly in a in a scarcity-based ac- late capitalist academia, where everyone is getting fucked over, everyone is like, How much bravery am I going to exhibit? How much am I going to put myself out there? And it's not uh an easy negotiation for people. To make it's easy for me because I have a position and I'm able to be brave. But then to expect young people to to have all of this bravery and to really be multidisciplinary, really be multidisciplinary, which everyone's saying they want, but do they really? Do they really want it? And um, the question is, I don't know. Or the answer is, I, I'm not. I'm not quite sure. So yeah. yeah. Before we move on, Jordan, tell us about what your article is about. Thanks. Yes. Um, Yes. So I also am in in the volume. And so my article looked at, I was doing some, I think I was doing a grad seminar paper on some of the new data that came out about tattooing but from the Middle Kingdom. So not Anne Austin's work with the New Kingdom women. And so when you look at the literature on these tattooed ladies who are often depicted nude or the little faience figurines that are nude that have tattoos early, Egyptologists often categorize these women as sex workers or like concubines for the dead as low status individuals. Um, And this got perpetuated within the literature, even into popular fiction, where they're still talked about in that way that, you know, sex workers or concubines are nude and had tattoos and were low status um, people. So my article sought to push back against this um, narrative. And if you actually look at the evidence for where these women were found, the archaeological evidence, um, they were very elite status women. They had coffins. They were buried in Mentehotep II's court um, within his mortuary temple in the North Triangular Court. And um, following Ellen Morris's work that they were part of a Henner troop. So these elite, more cultic in a more cultic function for either the king or sometimes for a god, um, and that the nudity and the tattooing functioned within this setting, and that so pushing back against um, misogynistic and also orientalizing notions of these early white Europeans that looked at these women, I think, with a little sexy um, (laughs) imagination in mind, and um, we're looking at them as, you know, women of the harem in this very orientalizing Ottoman type of idea. And so pushing back against that narrative and that actually these women had elite titles. They were um, within the elite court and served a cultic role instead. So it was fun to do a little, it was more historiographic, um, looking back at the literature and seeing 
on Victorian times about how they viewed nudity, obviously how they viewed tattooing, um, things like this were pervading the early excavators' interpretations of this data. And I will say I am right now teaching a grad seminar on um, issues in ancient Mediterranean history, how incredibly uselessly broad. <laughs> I was not allowed to choose the topic, but uh, I actually had, so we're doing like broad thematic weeks and both Jordan and Nadia's papers were assigned reading in that class and um, students were, um, they were really evocative discussion papers for bringing up, again, these past assumptions in the field, kind of like mini lit reviews on how these topics topics have been addressed. And then just kind of like drawing back the curtain, Wizard of Oz style, mm -hmm. being like, oh, hold on. None of this makes sense, especially in Jordan's case, in like, in like hilariously obvious ways. Yeah. If you just pause to take a look at it yeah. um, for more than a second. Uh, and so I think that was really helpful, especially with a group of grad students that are not, you know, Egyptologists yeah. at all. So because what are we supposed to be doing in the classroom? We could be giving them the encyclopedic, this is the social pyramid, craftsmen connected in this way, blah, blah, blah. or we could show papers, expose people to thinking that makes them confused or argue or not sure of what the reality is. And that's what a real vibrant classroom is. That's when a classroom comes alive. Um, we all know that that Egyptian coffee table book where you're like, oh my God, this is so great. And it's got beautiful pictures and you try to read it and you fall asleep. And it's so it's so boring and it's just the facts. And it's like there, there's no analysis. It's mm -hmm. just description. And and we just wanted to create something that was alive. It's not solved. Nothing's tied up in a neat little oh. bow at all. It's that's it's what, alive. That's what people How hate, do we, <laughs> I know. But that they want it to be. And that's what people hate. They want it to be all solved and be like, but what was the truth? And we're like, but we don't know. That's the point. But they're like, but shut up and stop it and tell me what it was. So true. It's yep. so true. Yeah. So part of part of the volume, as you guys touched upon yeah. for each of the different sections for people, place and power, you all took one of those and wrote like a theoretical background, method methodological background to it, um, which I think stand completely alone and are great, really useful introductions to identity, like how to, you know, different methods of looking at identity, different approaches and are just useful in amongst themselves without even having the case studies. Um, I've assigned them to students too for, for, for coursework. You also mentioned how you took the ones that maybe weren't so far in your wheelhouse or how was it um, writing these and just give a, like a little yeah, synopsis background about them. This was the hardest Can thing. I Wait, can I start really fast? And then Nadia, you go, I have to say this. So we kept having these meetings at my house where we would be like, okay, we're going to have a writing meeting. Everyone come over and we would eat and talk and all this. And then people would go into different rooms and write different things. And I remember when Danny, she went into the office that I'm in right now. She came in here and like two hours later, she's like, I'm done. I wrote it. I got it. And then Nadia's like, but <laughs> Then I remember, Nadia, I think you went through like 12 drafts of this thing. I did. Um, I, I did. It's to write about power is, I, I find it to be the hardest topic because what is power and how do we actually study it? Uh -huh. and that was the I, whole point of the paper. So I know, I know, I know these are, these are the main questions, right? In the paper. So when you, when you look at it, it's short. I mean, these are, these are very short introductory um, standalone pieces that are meant to bring in and frame the the contributions that you're about to lead, read, but also to to cause you to reflect on 
what these general um, terms mean and how we actually study them. And when it came to power, I just, yeah, as Kara said, I think I went through 12 different drafts of this. And um, in what I really tried to do is bring, is to basically to highlight new approaches to power um, that I found interesting in, in my own research and put those into conversation around general themes around new approaches to power that I, I saw in the contributions in my mm -hmm. section. We all got involved in each other's work, right? So yeah, yes. everyone was like, but you missed this, but you missed that. But what about this? But what about that? But I don't think anyone got more involved in the work than you two in my in my place article. <laughs> it, was, it was intense. Um, I do, I do it, remember this. <laughs> right? And I'm like, oh my God, they're rewriting me again. Oh my God, they're asking me to redo it again. I had to redo it. Like there's a movie called The River Runs Through It. And the father's a Presbyterian minister and the two boys, um, they're being homeschooled by this father. And he, you know, they, they give them the paper. He looks at it, he says, do it again. And they have to go and do it again, do it again, half as long, do it again, half as long. And they're like, oh my God. And they become both of them amazing writers because of this training. And I felt like that. I was like, I just had to keep going back and do it again, do it again and cut it and make it half as long. Um, and I, but I started the first draft that I did of this, I wrote in Dodger Stadium, which I think I is funny. Also wrote of <laughs> it. Right. It gives, it gives an idea because, you know, Remy had season tickets and I'm like, well, what am I going to do here when baseball games were five hours long? So I wrote, I wrote the first draft of it there. And then I just kept, you know, uh, so I'll, I'll start with mine and then I want to hear what you two have to say about both of yours. But like, you know, in the same way that I'm grappling with what's fashionable to say about body in terms of feminism and, and binary body identities, imposed binaries and all of these things, what you're allowed to say and what's not, what are you allowed to say about how geography forms culture and society? Because geographic determinism is now, it is passe, it is done, you can't even say it. And it's gone so far overboard that we now have new materialists coming back and saying, oh no, but, you know, place does shape society and here's how. But but I was still fighting against this um, this refusal of saying that to say that geography is is forming anything, even though for ancient Egypt, I think it's so obvious that that place is shaping this extraordinarily unusual place or system or society. Place is shaping place. Place is shaping society. Um, that that I think it really it really needed to be done. So I I wanted to talk about how. The river in particular forms and shapes an elite society, an elite society that in the Kemet, not in the red land, not in the land where people can remove themselves from elite society and, and be more resistant, but in the black land are caged in a sense and, and, have, and are much more exploitable um, being settled along the banks of that river. And even things like um, like two points, like the fact that the Nile erases its boundaries every season when those, when the river floods and then a more powerful person can come and say, oh no, this is my boundary stone. And the person's like, no, no, it goes here. But there's no, there's nothing. The, the boundaries have all been erased by the flood itself. And that flood is an organizing factor in helping those who are able to be stronger and take more, continue to take more over generations and create some more um, unequal society. And then just the idea of the bend of the Nile, the Cana bend around Luxor and how it may have been because it's it's not in a north-south um, oriented fashion geographically, because it's hard to pilot and move through that Cana bend using the winds. And it's 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 
not easy to tax. It's not easy to control and take over as the straight areas in, in Middle Egypt, for example. Kingship finds its source in this southern area. And I wanted to point that out as well, that Upper Egypt, or at least that Caneb end, is a place of resistance against the apex of the Nile, Memphis, Heliopolis, and those places, such that it can strike back and take over um, these other areas. So I, again, my geography, and Danny said at the beginning of this, is about power, <laughs> but um, maybe as much as geography. But um, it was it was really fun to write, and it was very much a conversation, as passionate a conversation through word edits, revision mode, as it was <laughs> in seminar over wine. Yes, there were a lot of conversations that got louder than they needed to be about, um, <laughs> I think you mean to say it this way. <laughs> um, but even just, I, I thought it was so interesting that she brought up the idea of like, for some reason, people are very comfortable saying that larger empires like let's say Persia and Rome um, spend massive amounts of state like infrastructure and funding on building road systems in order to control their geographic territories and move goods, services, military, et cetera, around their vast empires. And Egypt is just kind of like pre-built that way um, along this single artery. And so, uh, you know, Kara's paper is really bringing up this idea of um, <clears throat> how the specific geography of the Nile Valley really allowed for uh, centralization and elite control in a way that just isn't present in other places, even other river valley civilizations. And as such, much more can be spent on propagandistic, big word, big word, propagandistic monumental displays of power than weapons of trying to get power, which is a typical Egyptian thing and, and very unusual compared to other parts of the West Asian and North African world funny to me because everyone wants to see Egyptian exceptionalism and here it is but not this way though thanks yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 and Danny you wrote the section on people which apparently you found very easy <laughs> yes so <laughs> I will say I think I found it easy because it's what I work on I know and, that's um, your, like... I got the one closest to my own research and um it also came of a came from a place of extreme frustration as well. So um, just, you know, I have been thinking about this topic for many years at that point and have continued to do so and um, just find often the way that uh, people are approached in the ancient world is incredibly stilted often. And, and just, you know, if you just think about people in the modern world for a second, you would never, ever approach them in this way. And there's some seems to be some just like fundamental disconnect with understanding that they were still people um, and they worked in much the same way in the ancient world. Um, and so just it was really a, an attempt at being like, um, you know, are you one thing? No. <laughs> Do you put on faces if you're in different contexts? Yes. Um, does like the way you were brought up structure the way you act? Yes. Uh et cetera, et cetera. I think that was why I was able to write it so quickly was again, I've been thinking about it for so long and also uh, it was coming from a place of irritation. <laughs> Nadia and I were so jealous. We were so jealous because you came out as kind of like that moment at the breakfast club where the nerdy guy finishes his letter and he's so proud and pats himself on the back. He's like, and and we were just like, fuck you, this is, this is not fair. <laughs> I mean, I find all of these articles, the 
prefaces to each of the sections really useful. And as I said earlier, standalone pieces for if you're looking for suggestions of new approaches, as Nadia was talking about, for power or different ways of approaching identity or understanding geography. Um, in amongst themselves, they were really useful. What I tried to do was to shift the focus on descriptions of power to explanations of power and to highlight research that I think is looking at the manifestation of power in many different contexts. So highlighting approaches to the intersection of violence and gender, for example, or thinking about the way that display works within a context of power, thinking about multi-scalar approaches to power. So really thinking about how do we get shared practices, for example, from the household to the community to throughout the landscape, what, what needs to happen between individuals and communities. So I really just tried to put new research into conversation with uh, the research in the volume and to highlight some new approaches to power. So that is what you can expect in my piece that, and it argues that power is foundational to how we understand why specific social organizations arise at certain places in time. Um, how power is, I think we tend to think about power as something that uh, one person has over another or an institution wields, but um, really to also think about power sharing as a strategy that can create more equality in society. So to think, why do we see certain configurations over others? That's what you can expect there. Now I'm going to put you all on the spot and give you an opportunity to highlight any other articles in the volume that you found particularly cool, insightful, that you think maybe deserve a little shout out. I mean, I guess this is playing favorites a bit, but um, I don't think anyone will be anyone will be upset. I already did this. <laughs> yes, I, I like I like you to have to pick another pick a, pick another pick another pick another okay I think okay. we all really liked I can speak maybe for all of us I think we all really liked Carrie's children mm-hmm. article children through a socioeconomic lens of value that was and, like so how awesome. much they cost yeah. mm. back, pushing back against this assumption that um children are not people a majorly important social category in ancient Egypt looking at this through a value-based approach and how much it costs, how much investment is made in actually raising a kid and, and um, looking at um, looking at that kind of as a proxy for understanding, like, no, these, these, these were important, valuable members of society that people made the choice to have kids because they wanted kids. And, um, you know, again, much the same way that like people do now. Um, so, but a, through a very interesting lens that I think most people tend not to look at. Um, yeah, I think Keita's article was really cool. Marco Keita's article about Egyptian origins and identity really hit this idea of what is identity in the body. Um, how can you talk about race and ethnicity? Um, the things that are probably the hottest topic on social media is about who the Egyptians were and are and who claims this culture and how how you really, these categories are so slippery, so problematic, and yet we we see all the time these publications of oh we looked at the dna of these bodies and they were all from the uh, from you know the middle east and not egyptian and egyptians weren't even egyptian i mean it's just ridiculous right um but but then there's an anti african 
um, bias in much of these discussions. And Schumarka took all of that on in a very careful, carefully reasoned um, discussion that I think is is helpful for, for working with these categories. I also liked Jeff's piece on making the past present, the use of archaism and festivals and thinking about how royal ideology is transmitted, taking on the this this challenge of the said festival is not changing mm-hmm. um, and, and thinking about this as a space for the constant performance of power and renegotiation of power and incorporation of uh, innovation into this festival. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And, and I loved Alize Devidies' paper with Dimitri Labori on the Egyptian artist and what kind of a category it should be. I don't agree with all of it necessarily, this idea that that they're always artists and there's no artisan, there's no craftsman or, or craftswoman. But this idea that craftspeople are the in these liminal spaces um, and how this work and what, you know, how you can talk about the artist, I think is is really interesting. And the data there is extraordinary. It finds its source in Alizé's dissertation, which moves all the way from the earliest periods to the Ptolemaic. And um, it's an, it's just a huge data set and and really important to to take on board when you're working with with uh, craft specialization. I really, I also enjoy uh, Ellen Morris's piece mm-hmm. is, um, I mean, she always approaches her scholarship in like, out of left field ways that are extremely useful and interesting. Mm-hmm. And um, um, she actually, I, I think it's an interesting one because she is challenging uh, almost a more recent counter assumption to an old assumption. Mm-hmm. So she's working on famine disaster literature in the first intermediate period and um, looking at whether were things that bad or were people playing this up in later periods for various reasons. So of late, and by that, I mean the last maybe 20 years, if not longer, um, people have gone from, yes, that was an accurate depiction of, of the state of affairs to um, let's actually look at how bad the climate change was. Um, and maybe it wouldn't have been quite this disastrous. And now, so Ellen coming back to the party and being like, well, let's like, you know, watching the pendulum of history narratives swing has been really interesting. And so Ellen compares a lot of the tropes and details in this ancient Egyptian famine literature to later descriptions of plagues and famines and and things like that, and actually finds a lot of similarities uh, between them. (laughs) And I think at the end of the day is arguing that like, probably there is some level of this uh, disaster going on um, as a result. It's really interesting the way that that the academy gets into these these um, pushbacks and every, it suddenly becomes fashionable to say, no, and I deal with this with the Ramesid period at the end of the Bronze Age as well. You know, oh, was it really that bad? You know, uh-huh. the people were, it, collapse isn't what you think it is. You know, collapse isn't a race society. It's okay. And it's like, well, have you been through one recently? And so let's discuss. Um, and um, it's, it's just interesting the way we really have been through in the aughts, the last 20 years, this this um, pushback against uh, history having human emotions, history having um, difficult, challenging time periods where where you have a collapse and that we're supposed to write it in a different way. And Ellen's here saying, no, go to the evidence, look at the evidence, and now write the story again, write the 
constructed history again. And I, and I really like that. And maybe, you know, there's all those memes out about millennials going through like every disaster known to mankind. And so maybe <laughs> this is our particular contribution to academia is where we have this perspective of like we're living through. I think what's the funny thing, like um, there's like the fuck around generation and we're in the find out uh, generation of <laughs> after people fucked around, we're we're finding out. Gen X and we invented this. So, yeah, but that's fine. That's she can take <laughs> some credit for it. But I will. I do want to highlight that our the volume not only covers it's mo mostly pharaonic Egypt, but we do have contributions also from Hellenistic Egypt and even Islamic Egypt. So we're pushing the boundaries of what we consider Egyptian society as well, which I think most textbooks will really bounded by pharaonic Egypt, mainly, you know, up to the Ramazid period. And once we get to the third intermediate period, it's like, eh, people don't touch We wanted it, so. to include a long duration of time. The society yeah. doesn't just stop because you become part of the Roman Empire. Society doesn't just change. There isn't a, a giant replacement of people because Egypt moves into the Islamic world. It's, it's, um, you keep so much of these these strands of of social organization, and we can follow those. Yeah. So Jenny Cromwell's article on language policy in early yeah. Islamic Egypt, and then the the other one was Christelle Fisher Beauvais on Hellenistic warfare in Egyptian society. Yeah. Those mm -hmm. those were really useful. And Cromwell's paper too is a really interesting look at. I was just looking at the table of contents and being like, what section did we put her in? Because. Mm -hmm. In my mind, that paper was all about power um, yeah. and looking at language, uh, language policies under empire as as power flexes, essentially. Um, and as a really interesting foil or like compliment, maybe even to Nadia's paper on the alphabet. Mm -hmm. um, and yet neither of them are in the power section uh, because um, again, back it's a back in place. It's also exactly, embedded. It's, yeah. a really, it's a really like interesting, each paper is such an interesting case study on, you know, how interconnected these three concepts are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Agree. So I'm now going to take this to a place of your experience working <laughs> editing a volume because we obviously have the fruitful labors we have the the product of your fruitful labors a beautiful volume with all these really interesting articles everyone's hard work and we have it now and now it's been over a year past um publication through rutledge and so i will ask you um what was it like editing a volume to demystify the academic process a bit for our listeners um, you know, they just see these books pop out, but they don't maybe know exactly all the hard, really hard work that goes into it. Um, the amount of time it takes, uh, years in most cases, right, to get these things. Um, so, yeah, so maybe give a brief background about like how the publication process works. Um, and then, yeah, your experience with it. Would you do it again? Things like this. We started. I will, I will preface this, sorry, Nods, by saying we this project spanned COVID. So yes, I think yeah. we have to I account for a little bit of insanity <laughs> yeah. from that, from that front. I was going to say, we started in 2018 and, and it was published in 2022 to give, to give listeners like a, a quick idea, but it started in, I believe late 2018 was when we started writing the proposal because I remember I was in Iceland then, and that's when I got engaged. Um, 
And then I got married throughout the process and I moved internationally throughout the process. So it took a, a long time. We started with the proposal. Um, before that, actually, before we wrote the proposal, you have to have a list of uh, contributors that agree to be part of the project. So invites had to go out first. People had to give commitments before we even submitted the proposal to Rutledge. From there, it has to go out for review. So other people have to say, this is something worthy of publishing. And it comes back to us. We give everyone, I think it was eight months originally, something like that, eight or nine months to get us the contributions. COVID happened. <laughs> <laughs> Danny and I both got married during that time, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Deadlines were extended several times. Deadlines, yeah. COVID, yeah. Um, uh, goes crazy through. times. Yeah, you get you. I mean, and then I would say to go back to what Jordan said early on um, about how it was like it felt comfortable for you to go through this for your first time. It was also for us as well. That's like true. I feel like this was such a learning experience. I had never edited a volume before. Um, so giving feedback to people whose research you admire and, you know, and feeling like, you know, to be critical and to make suggestions that in and of itself was a learning experience. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Nadia and I both started as, uh, you know, advanced PhD candidates, but, yeah. but still grad students and um, navigating the hierarchical scholars with our PhDs. So it was, yeah. a, that was an interesting process as well. There were definitely some comments that we were like, Tara, these are going to go out in your name for sure. <laughs> Not ours. I wrote, I wrote the mean emails. I was yeah. like, yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I did do that. But actually <laughs> I, I, I would say, so first of all, this book is a 27 chapter monstrosity. Yeah. <laughs> and I, have, a lot. I, I am now involved in another edited project that is only nine chapters and the scale makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, you know, it's a little bit of herding cats. Um, you, uh, many of you follow Kara, so you know how, uh, how busy she is and how much <laughs> she is doing. And so imagine having 27 of those to like keep yeah. on some kind of a timeline and yeah. et cetera. Um, and so that was challenging, but I would say very, uh, fulfilling and interesting, especially once we got into the nitty gritty of, of like editing the actual chapters, um, and that process went through sort of the uh, the editing, the, the editorial team here, the three of us did some edits, sent it back. It came back to us. We compiled the whole manuscript and then that went out for external peer review. And then it went back for edits again. So it was a long process, but really interesting. Um, and then after that came the sort of more nitty gritty publishers side of getting the book ready for publication and making sure, you know, the bibliography was in the right format and all sorts. And sometimes when we're writing, writing long is easy and making something short and pithy and full of power is not, it's not easily done mm -hmm. and it's not easy to edit in that way. And so what we were asking our authors to do was like, we love this. This is great. Now take out 2000 words. People's heads exploded. And then yes. they're like, well, we don't want to. Why? And then I would say, okay, we have to help them. And, and because we're all so busy, tell, and you did this for me with my geography paper. I was like, I cannot kill my darlings right now. So tell me what to cut. And I remember giving you my paper and saying, just, gut, just have at it, weed whack it, send it back to me. Yeah. So looking back now with a, a year's perspective, is there anything you would have done differently? 
you all don't seem too traumatized from edited volumes. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing more of them. We're doing more. It was a, it was such a, it was a great learning experience. Right. I think I'm working on my current project. I'm, I feel like it really prepared me. I'm working on two edited volumes and then um, two special issue journal volumes. And I feel like going into those, I know, <laughs> I know what to expect, which I think has been, and also what it's like to work with others. Like, okay. I think you can be very, I, I mean, I'm a control freak. I know that, you know, and so to work with others is, it's a, it's a good learning experience, Absolutely. but I will also say like, we all, I think we're all control freaks and perfectionists. And I think that's what really, I'm not. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think it, we, we worked really well on a team together. I will say that. Like, I feel like the, the approach that we took in terms of sitting, actually having discussions in the same room, um, and letting like our conversations guide our decisions collectively was really helpful in terms of like the editorial shaping of the volume. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. All, all three of us went through some life moments in the course of this and yeah. we were pretty good at being like <laughs> hot potato, like <laughs> be like, okay, you're in charge for like the next month. I'm well, I get my life together. Um, uh, so yeah. we were able to help each other out in that way as well. Um, I think the best edited volumes are co-edited volumes for that very reason, because life happens and somebody's going to need help and support and then somebody else can pick it up and keep the process going. But also it's not just one monolithic voice. You're you're having to cooperate and work with other perspectives. And that's why this volume is alive, is alive with ideas. I think it's it's really great. Well, I feel like it's to show you you really care about a field right, is to challenge it and to try to make it better. And so I think the shows are our care and our passion for the field of Egyptology and ancient studies writ large um, in trying to make it more accessible, challenge these approaches, make it more diverse, things like that. So if anything, I really think it speaks to your, um, you all's passion and um, contribution to the field in general as scholars. And while we were working on this book, you know, like, our society was going to hell in a handbasket and yep. lots of issues sure were coming to the fore. And yep. so I think it was a really, you know, uncomfortable but productive time to be thinking about society, mm -hmm. even if it was in ancient Egypt. And um, a lot of the, you know, these like broader social issues were things that we wanted to grapple with uh, as well in the, mm -hmm. in the course of the volume. And not just like putting together the project, but even in some of the papers. In summation, where can people buy the book? Any listeners want to um, buy the book, read some of the articles? Where is where is the book available? I believe it's on Amazon. It is so on Amazon. You can go there. I can answer my own question. It is on Amazon. <laughs> you can buy paperback, hardcover, and Kindle version. And you can also Ooh. rent it, which is also very handy. And I think for, for um, school-based systems, being able to rent the book for... A class is a great option as well. And it's very reasonably priced. Um, the paperback is actually cheapest through the publisher at Rutledge. So if you're looking for um, to save some money, but you can also, you know, buy a used copy or something like this. And if you hate Amazon, which is fine, support that. And you want to get it through a small bookstore, 
you can, I just checked my local bookstore and they can order it for you. So from the publisher. So if you don't want to support Amazon, that's totally cool too. And um, so, yeah, you can get it in a variety of formats and we hope you enjoy it and probably in your local library. I know our libraries have it. Mm-hmm. Um, we were in, in Turin at the Museo Gizio and we noticed their library had it. So we were happy to see and see that there. If not, make your library buy it. Um, if you have said powers, if you're at a university, I, notice they don't have it, request them to buy it. Yeah. And I just want to lastly thank uh, Danny and Nadia for taking time out of their, on their Sunday. Nadia's in a different continent. So it's the evening for her. So I just want to thank you guys for popping by and, and chatting with us. So. And um, I'll let Danny and Nadia take us out. This is Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks so much, Tyler. Thank you to our listeners for your support and please subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to ancientnow at substack.com. We actually do read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all of that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com, where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. Support the show by becoming a paid subscriber at our Substack Ancient Now community. This keeps the show free for everyone, and paid status gives you access to our archives. Thank you to our current supporters. I'm at all the social medias. Look for at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.